Good morning, church. Once again, we have come to the best portion of our service this morning, and that is the preaching of God's Word, not because I'm preaching, but because it's God's Word, and uh, God's Word is faithful. So let us read God's Word. Uh, We're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Let's read. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful that we have the privilege to call you Father. That we are your children, Lord. And we come to you this morning as such that you would instruct us, that you would train us, Lord, through your word, That through your word, Father, you would help us consider Jesus. That you would help us fix our eyes on your son this morning. Father, I pray that you would help me preach your word. And that you would help my brothers and sisters receive your word. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, in my... Almost 15 years as a believer, I've, I've had this passage preached, I've heard this passage preached many times. And most times, I have heard this passage, the audience is asked to visualize themselves in an Olympic race inside of a stadium, and all these tens of thousands of saints are sitting there watching us as we attempt to run this race, rooting us on, cheering us on unto the finish line. And many times these sermons, we are, 
we are compared to great Olympic gold medalists. Runners like Carl Lewis, Daley Thompson, Jackie Joyner-Kersey. And so we are encouraged to look at this text from a perspective that is actually foreign to the intended meaning of the author. You see, this kind of perspective places the emphasis on our ability to run the race. Yet I believe that our text this morning is not here to show us how capable we are as runners, but how faithful our God is to get us through the race. So instead of comparing ourselves to Carl Lewis, we are better off comparing ourselves to Derek Redmond. Now, who is Derek Redmond? <laughs> exactly. You see, unlike Carl Lewis, Derek Redmond is not a name that conjures up memories of Olympic gold medals. Redmond arrived at the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona, determined to win a medal in the 400 meters. He had been forced to withdraw from the 400 at the 1988 Games in Seoul only 10 minutes before the race because of an injury. He then, because of that injury, underwent five different surgeries over the next year, and he underwent a grueling rehabilitation process and training to be able to get back to the Olympics. So when the 1992 Games arrived, this was his time to shine. And Derek's father, Jim, had accompanied him to Barcelona. He had been a big supporter of his son over the years. They were as close as a father and a son could be, completely inseparable. So when Derek ran, it was as if his father was running right next to him. Now, as the day of the race arrives, father and son start reminiscing about what it took for Derek to get to this point. They talk about laying aside past heartbreaks, past failures. They agree that if anything had happened, no matter what happened, Derek has to cross the finish line. And so as time for the race approaches for the 400 meters semifinal, Jim, the father, heads up to his seat at the top of Olympic Stadium. Now the stadium is packed. There's 65,000 fans bracing themselves for one of the greatest and most exciting spectacles of the sport. And so as the race begins, Redmond breaks from the pack and quickly seizes the lead. And his father's like, keep it up, keep it up. Down the stretch he comes, and only 175 meters away from finishing, Redmond is close to his goal. But suddenly, he hears a pop in his right hamstring. And he pulls up lame as if he had been shot Oh no, his father says to himself. His face is turning pale as he sees his son's leg giving out. And Redman begins hopping on one leg. And then he slows down and falls to the track. And as he lays on the track, he's clutching his hamstring. And Redman realizes his dream of an Olympic medal is gone. Tears are running down his face. And all he could think was, I'm out of the Olympics again. My friends, it's a whole lot easier for you and me to relate to Derek Redman. Because in our race of faith, the reality is that this is who we are. We are not gold medalists of faith, but we in fact have moments where our faith breaks down and where it stalls. 
And this is exactly where this sermonic letter meets its audience. They had started the race of faith, bursting through the starting line, believing Christ to be their promised Messiah. They were running with all their strength and all their might, working and showing their love for one another, and showing the love for His name and serving the saints. But all of a sudden, the pulled hamstring of persecution brought them to a stall. And all of a sudden, the Jewish community that started persecuting them and went against them, stopped them from running. In fact, some of them were beginning to go backwards, renouncing Christ. And this is where the letter finds its audience. And perhaps this is where this letter finds many of us here this morning. Hardships and struggles weigh us down. Sin is causing us to stop running and is tempting us to get off the track. We are hurting. We are wounded. Completely discouraged. And just as Derek's hamstring is torn, so is our faith. And so we ask questions and we say, God, what do you want me to do? Like Derek laying on the track, we realize that once again we have failed Are we going to give up or are we going to continue? Are we going to endure the pain and finish the race? So the question for us this morning, church, is this. When the race of faith becomes hard and painful, when the obstacles in our way look too big to overcome, when our hearts grow weary and faint, what do God's children do? And our text this morning calls us to do two things. And these two things will serve us as our two points this morning. So point number one, it calls us to run God's race. Look at verse one, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now one of the things I love most about our text this morning is that it begins with an encouragement. An encouragement that is going to set up the whole tone of the whole text. You see, God's heart through these verses is to encourage His children. And so He begins by drawing our attention back to the hall of faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses... This is an encouragement to run the race because of this cloud of witnesses. Now, as Miguel said, this cloud of witnesses is giving us testimony that the race is worth it. But, I do want you to do me a favor. And I want you to get out of your mind that imagery of a stadium. And all these people sitting up there cheering you on. Because that's not the point he's trying to make. What is this cloud of witnesses? Well, we met them in chapter 11. That's what we've spent looking at for the last three weeks. They give testimony to the value of life, of a life of faith. They give testimony to the power of living by faith, to the wisdom of living by faith, to the righteousness of faith, to the blessing of faith. So what he's saying is, since we have so great a cloud of testimonies to the power of faith, let's run the same race.
That's what he's saying. And so God, through this author, gives us three pointers on how to run the race of faith. Point number one. Let us lay aside, verse one, every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, in order to run effectively, he tells us we have got to get rid of useless weight and sin. Now, I remember years ago, one of the Olympics, I was watching the sprinting events, and the world's leading sprinter lost. And the commentator said afterwards, he lost because he had put so much weight on. You see, certain things need to be eliminated if you're going to run a race of faith effectively. Number one, every weight. Now, this word in the Greek simply means bulk. It could be a mass of anything. It could be weights that you're carrying around. We need to get rid of anything that slows us down in the race. Now, a runner starts with a reduction of all the excess body weight. So, for instance, you think I could run a marathon? Right, right. So a runner takes care of all the weight off. And then he trains to make sure that he stays that way. In the race, he takes off his baggy warm-up suits. He gets down to the minimum so that he is able to run with no weight at all. Now, what is he talking about here? What is he referring to with this weight? Well, first of all, it's not sin. Because he already made the distinction between weight and sin. So what is this weight that he's talking about? Well, if the weight is in sin, then what is it? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us here, but I think it's obvious of what it is. What was dragging down these Jewish believers in this new community? What was holding them back? What was dragging them down? What baggage were they still carrying around? And the answer to that is simple. The baggage that they were still carrying around was the Judaistic legalism. You see, they were running, I guess you could say, like overweight people in bulky sweatshirts. They were going to collapse in a pile of legalistic sweat, holding on to their rabbinic traditions, their dead works, and their dead weight. It wasn't easy to let go of it. They were ingrained in them. Remember, they were holding on to the temple. They were holding on to the priests. They were holding on to rituals. They were holding on to the ceremonies. That's why throughout this whole letter, the writer keeps saying that Jesus is a better priest. That he's a better sacrifice. That he's a better temple. He's a better covenant. And in chapter 6, he tells them, let's let go. Leave these things behind. You see, we can never run by faith if we're hanging on to works. The race is run by faith plus nothing else. And anything you hang on to with a desire to add to the work of faith is just a pointless weight and it will slow you down. So he's saying, unload your Judaism, unload your legalism and drop all the old weights and the sin which clings so closely. So secondly, what is the sin? And once again, we need to understand that these things he is asking of us to lay aside, we need to understand what they are in the context of the letter. Otherwise, instead of this word being a word of encouragement, it can become a word of condemnation. You see, reality is 
that we are always sinning. 24-7, 365 days a year. There is sin going on right now in my heart and in yours, even now as I preach this sermon. So, is the writer speaking of sin in general, or is he speaking of a specific, specific sin? Now, don't get me wrong. All sin is certainly a hindrance to our race of faith. But I think he's talking about something specific here. He says here, the sin which clings so closely. Now, if you're trying to run a race of faith, what would be the biggest hindrance to faith? Unbelief. I think that's obvious implied here. He's talking about the sin of unbelief. The sin that clings so closely is the sin of doubting God. And so as we've seen over the last three weeks, all of the members of the Hall of Faith were fallen sinners. Some of them committed sins that you and I have never and will never commit, yet they are the cloud of witnesses that serve as an encouragement to keep running. Why? Because what is highlighted here is it's not their sin, but it's what is highlighted is their faith. They believed God. God commends them not for their self-righteousness, but God commends them for their faith. He is saying to them and to us, do not doubt God, but lay aside the sin of unbelief. Sin at its very heart is always unbelief. You always engage in an act of unbelief when you sin. We all do. You see, whenever we sin, we believe we will get gratification in a way that God says we won't. So when we sin, we're saying, I don't believe you, God. This is what I want, and this is what's best for me. I reject what you're saying. All sin, then, is an act of practical unbelief. So now, if you're going to try to run a faith race, unbelief or failure to believe God is going to hinder you. So it's hanging on to any kind of works. We need to lay these things aside. Then he tells us what this looks like in our race. It looks like running with unwavering faith. So look at verse 1, uh, verse 1b. It starts with the end. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now the writer is asking us to run the race with unwavering faith. He wants us to understand that this is not a short sprint, but a race of endurance. We are in a marathon of faith, and the marathon is grueling. It is painful and filled with many obstacles, and it doesn't end until we die. You see, the race of faith is not just sitting in some great sanctified pillow, waiting for the rapture, while God is your sugar daddy prospering every move you make. That isn't the point of the race of faith. Now, notice the word race in verse 1. He says, let us run the race. This word in the Greek is the same word from where we get the word agony. That's the race of faith. It's an agonizing race. And it is sad to see Christians only emphasize the happy scenes of the Christian faith and ignore wrestling with the difficult scenes of a race that Jesus himself told us would be filled with agony. 
I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine a bumper sticker that read, You want real agony? Try Jesus. You see, not too many Christians would have that on their car bumpers, would they? But this is what this Hebrew pastor is telling this congregation. He is saying, run the race even though this is an agonizing marathon. Even though you may experience the hatred of your brother like Abel did. Or the mocking and the scorn of your generation like Noah. Or the pain of waiting in godly promises like Abraham. Run the race even when you may face the edge of the sword or the trials or cruel mocking and scourging, imprisonment, even being stoned. Do not stop. Run, run, run the race that is set before you with unwavering faith. Because just as Abel, Noah, Abraham, and the great cloud of witnesses received God's commendation, so will you. The author has reminded us to run the race with unhindering faith and with unwavering faith. But he also reminds us to run with undistracted faith. Now, I don't know about you, but not too many runners could run a race with their eyes looking down at their feet or up to the sky. You see, if we are to run the race of faith effectively, we need to have a focus point. We can't be distracted. We must be focused. And that is what the writer tells us in verse 2. He says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we run the race, we are to keep our eyes on Christ. The obstructions are thrown away. The weights are thrown off. The race is underway. We have the encouragement of the testimony of all those who ran the race in the past and went right on through trials and crisis after crisis to receive God's commendation. And there we are, running this race, looking to our perfect example of faith. And that is Jesus Christ. Listen, my friends. He is the greatest example of faith that ever lived Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what he did? He became a servant, and he believed God, who said, I will not let my Holy One see corruption. And he came into the world and he died on the cross knowing full well that even though he bore the sins of the world, he would come out of the grave to be our Redeemer and be restored to the place that he had before he came down with the Father. Jesus believed the Father and his act of faith is unsurpassable. And now he says to us, when you are running and you are growing weary and discouraged, Look to Jesus. He is the founder of the very race, faith, race of faith that you are running. And he is the perfecter of your faith. In Christ, God is perfecting our faith. He is not just a model to behold, but he is the very one who started us in the race. And the very one who is perfecting us through it. Once again, Paul in Philippians 1.6 tells us, 
And I am sure of this. What are you sure of, Paul? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We look to Jesus because he is the founder, the perfecter, and the finish line. He is our goal. Now let me try to illustrate this looking to Jesus for you. Now we all know that our eyes are the focal point of everything. For example, driving a car, right? When we drive a car. When we drive a car, we cannot watch our hood and prevent an accident. Basically speaking, your eyes constantly focus on a point a couple of hundred feet away from the car. You don't watch the car. You don't watch the steering wheel. You don't watch your feet, the pedals. (laughs) Lord help us, you don't watch that. You watch a focal point far beyond yourself. And the Greek term here literally says, this is what it says. It says, look away to Jesus. Look away to Jesus. The writer is telling us, the sooner you get your eyes off yourself, the better off you are. We don't need to be in constant discussion about our problems and self-analyzing every move we make. And always falling in introspection and always analyzing our spiritual life and placing our sins under a microscope, so forth on and on. We get to what we need to do is instead of being wrapped up in watching everything about ourselves, we need to look to Jesus. The sooner we get our eyes off ourselves and get them focus on Jesus Christ, the better off we all are going to be. You can't run the race of faith watching your feet. Not unless you want to fall on your nose. That's why we need to look to Jesus. My friends, reality is that as much as we sit here this morning thinking, yes, yes, I need to keep my eyes on Jesus, there are times in our lives, in our race, when we are distracted by the obstacles along the way, and we take our eyes off of Jesus, and we place them on the difficult circumstances. We place them on the painful experiences. We place them on the sinful actions, and we find ourselves stopping in the race and laying down on the track, tempted to give up. Why is my business barely getting by? Lord, why is this happening to me? Lord, why is it that you allow this painful situation in my life? And this is where the Hebrews found themselves. If you remember, as we have gone through the first 11 chapters of this book, it was being written to Christians who were being persecuted, who were being cordially attacked. They were finding themselves in a culture that was completely antagonistic and violent towards the gospel and towards them. And so they were being put in prison. They were having their stuff stolen from them. They were having the right to buy and sell homes taken away from them. It was a very difficult time. And so throughout the first 11 chapters, God, what has God been doing? God has been trying to draw their attention to Jesus. So that they will not give up. And so that they will keep running. But in the next few verses, God is going to do something that he hasn't done to this point. He is going to answer their questions regarding their suffering. He wants them to run the race of faith undistracted, looking to Jesus. 
But he wants to point out to them exactly what they can learn from fixing their eyes on Jesus that would address their very own condition. And so he's saying, look to Jesus, and this is what I want you to learn. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. God is saying to this Hebrew audience and to us this morning, I know the race is hard. There are painful situations you will and have encountered. There is hostility. There is wrestling with great sorrow. And there is danger of growing weary of the race and losing heart. But I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. For He endured all that you are and all you are called to endure. And He endured even much more. Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He is saying, yes, you are enduring some of the same hostility from sinners that Jesus endured. But you haven't endured to the point of death in your struggle against their sin. And this brings us to our second point. And then he says to them, let me tell you why you are enduring such sin. Verse number 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. You hear that? God wants us to understand that we are to run God's race, and when that race is met with obstacles and hardships, as sons and daughters, we are to regard God's discipline. So what do God's children do when the race of faith becomes hard and painful? They run the race. What else do they do? Point number two. They regard God's discipline. Now in order for us not to regard God's discipline lightly, I think we need to consider three things. First thing to consider is, consider the source. Now, what God wants us to understand through these verses is that the painful circumstances of our lives, the obstacles along the race of faith, the hostility of others in our lives, are the work of a sovereign God training His children. God, through these, is bringing discipline to us. Now, let me do a little word study for you guys, okay? This word discipline here is not punitive. This is not punishment. This is training. So what he's saying is, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord. But he's also going to say, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So he starts outside by saying, hey, don't take lightly the training of God, and when he does spank you, understand that his training, the one he loves. Those he calls sons and daughters. Now, this is is really off the charts, guys. And this is very hard, even for us to grasp, okay? Because what just happened in in this text? What just happened is something that is rejected by many believers. This text is saying that the sinful acts of other men and women pressed on believers in Christ were ultimately whose action? God's. 
the violent aggressions of men and women towards these Hebrew believers, God just said to them, that came from me. Not because they were in sin, not because they were unrepentant, but because he's training them. Now, I don't want us to make a mistake expounding these verses. These verses are not primarily about God spanking a rebellious child. Nowhere within the context of this book has the writer spoken of a particular sin that God is addressing in these Hebrews. Nowhere within the context of the book has God said that there is certain sin that he's, that he's going to try to bring suffering in order for them to force them to conform to his rules. And so to view this text in that way would be a hermeneutical error. The context of this discipline is to be trained to endure in the race. It's like a runner having a coach who makes sure the runner is being trained for the race. And that coach is God. He is actively training us in the race many times through hardship and suffering. So that we can finish the race. This is why we look to Jesus. Because he is perfecting us through the suffering. So now that we have considered the source, let us consider the motive. What is God's motive behind the discipline? Many of us are suffering through painful struggles right now. Does that mean that God is disciplining us because there is unrepentant sin in our lives? Well, not necessarily. It could be, but according to this text, it could just be the work of God in the life of his children in order to strengthen their faith to endure in the race. I want us to consider this. Okay, we started this section of scripture with an encouragement. What was the encouragement? To run the race of faith in light of all the testimonies that have gone before us in chapter 11. Now, we are constantly in need of that encouragement because just like the trials that the Hall of Faith inductees experienced, we also experience such trials. But let us consider the trials that God in His infinite, infinite wisdom highlighted in the Hall of Faith chapter. And we realize that there is nothing punitive about the trials. God didn't allow Cain to murder his brother Abel because Abel needed spanking. God didn't have Noah go through the scorn of his generation. Because he needed to be forced to lay aside sin. God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice the promised son. Because Abraham was rebellious. You get what I'm saying? You see the trials that all these heroes of the faith encounter. Were not God's way of calling their attention to their sin. But it was God's way of training them in the faith and helping them endure the race. Now, yes, there are moments in these men's lives where God did spank them. But those were not the testimonies that were mentioned in chapter 11 as our cloud of witnesses. Furthermore, we are encouraged by the writer to look to Jesus who suffered to the point of death. Are we to say... That the father was spanking Jesus every time he suffered? Obviously not. 
what this book actually tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, is that He was being perfected through suffering. He was being qualified to be our Savior and our model of faith. He was, he was becoming qualified to be our model and to be our founder and perfecter. Now, if that is not enough evidence for us, then let us look at the motive written by God Himself in verses 6 through 8. He says this, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom whom He receives. Mind you, He makes a distinction between one and the other. And then He says in verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, God's motive is his fatherly love. And so he tells us that it is for training that we have to endure. God is treating us as legitimate sons and daughters. Not as unrepented sinners who need correction to turn back as sons and daughters who need training. In other words, in your pain, you are not being treated as a slave or as an enemy. You are being treated as a loved child of God. The issue is, will you believe this? Will you let the word of God settle this issue for you? So that the suffering that you endure does not become a way for you to prosecute God and accuse Him. You see, two weeks ago, we moved to this wonderful apartment in Celebration Point. After two full years of our family living with other brothers and sisters, we were so excited to finally be on our own. And I was even more excited that the brother who rented the apartment to us rented it to us at half the cost of most apartments around this area. Now, I remember running some errands the Monday morning after we moved in. And I was thinking to myself, man, from here to December, when we move to Westchester, we are going to have a few thousand dollars saved to buy furniture for our new home. Just a few hours later, as I spoke to the property manager, she informed me that because we have three kids, we are not eligible to live in that unit. We needed to move. And at this moment, I realized that my father had plans for my family. What may look like hardship in our eyes is nothing more than the loving training of my father. I don't know of any sin that God is disciplining us for, but I do know that over the last three years of my life, my father has been at work building our faith. And we are not the same because of his loving training. You see, years ago, I would have dealt with this obstacle with sin. But because of my father's training, we are able to rejoice and faithfully wait for his loving providence. My friends, these hardships strengthen our faith. They train us to trust God and to run the race with endurance. If you have the wrong theological framework and you believe that because you are the king's kid 
Everything you touch will turn to gold and all your wishes will come true. Then please allow this scripture to change your framework. Those whom God leaves untrained through the fire of suffering are not his children. And as if seeing the motive of God wasn't enough, the writer concludes by having us consider the result. Verses 9 through 11. He says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His, his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God calls us to consider the result of his training. The result of his discipline. And the first thing we see is that if we respect, that's what the word regard means. Respect, receive, embrace. If we respect the discipline of the Father of spirits, we will live. In other words, if we embrace His discipline, instead of regarding it lightly, we will live a life that is life indeed, unlike our earthly father, Adam, who regarded lightly the instruction of the Lord and brought death upon himself and his family. Furthermore, we are told that this discipline is not like our earthly father's, who disciplined us as they saw fit. Different fathers have different ways of training their children, right? Some don't mind if they drink a gallon of Coke before they go to sleep, right? So they train us as they see fit. But God, He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. And then he goes on and says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I just want to leave you guys with these four words that are right here in this text. Our good, our holiness, our peace, our righteousness. You see, this is the design of our loving Father that comes to us painfully and mysteriously through the hostility of sinful adversaries and the hazard of a fallen world. So what does God's children do when the race of faith becomes hard and painful and there are obstacles in the way? You guys remember Derek Redmond? Well, this is what he did. As he laid on the track in pain, and the medical crew arrives with a stretcher. Redmond tells him, no, there's no way I'm getting on that stretcher. I'm going to finish my race. Then, in a moment that will live forever in the minds of millions, Redmond lifts himself up to his feet ever so slowly and starts hobbling down the track one painful step after another. His face is twisted with pain and tears. And Redman limps onward, and the crowd, many in tears, cheer him on. Suddenly, Jim Redman, his father, 
finally gets to the bottom of the stands. He leaps over the trailing, avoids a security, security guard, and runs out to his son. There's two security people chasing after him. And he's saying, that's my son out there. And I'm going to help him. And finally, with Derek refusing to surrender and painfully limping along the track, Jim reaches his son at the final curb with about 120 meters left to go. And he wraps his arms around his waist. And he says, I'm here, my son. Jim says softly, hugging his boy, we'll finish together. Derek puts his arms around his father's shoulder and he sobs. And together, arm in arm, father and son, with 65,000 people cheering, clapping and crying, finish the race just as they vowed they would do. A couple, a couple of steps from the finish line, with the crowd in absolute frenzy, Jim releases the grip he has on his son so that Derek could cross the finish line by himself. Then he throws his arms around Derek again, both crying with everyone in the stands and on TV. And he says, I'm the proudest father alive. He tells the press afterwards with tears in his eyes. My friends, what a picture of the love of the father for us. When God's children are struggling through their race of faith, when they are wounded by the hardships and the hostility of the fallen world, our Father runs to our side to carry us through the finish line. This is what we learn through this text. God is actively caring for us and loving us as a loving Father, training us in the race of faith, making sure that we finish the race. So what do God's children do when the race of faith becomes hard and painful? God's children endure in faith through the Father's love. Let us pray. Father, Lord, I know that there is nothing for you to be proud of us for. For we are sinners, Lord, and we are constantly disobeying your commands. But Lord, I know that when we reach the finish line, in Jesus Christ, you will commend each one of us for our faith. You will receive us, Father, with tears in your eyes. And you will say, well done. And so, Lord, we run the race today in light of that day. We run the race today looking to Jesus Christ, who is the founder of our race, who is the perfecter of our faith, Lord, we look to Him. And Father, we thank You for the discipline that You bring in our lives. We thank You, Father, that we are not spoiled children. We thank You, Lord, that we have hardships and trials and struggles, Father, because they are building our faith. They are training us to run the race. 
So, Father, we thank you that you are actively helping us, carrying us, training us, Lord. May we not despise it. May we not, Father, regard it lightly. My, but may we be those who at the end receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness because we were trained by it. You are such a good Father. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.